for the afternoon session. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce to you the bearded man who looks like Einstein. Please. <laughs> no. Well, uh, his, name, his name is not Einstein, his name is uh, Rudy Fritsch. He's a Canadian Hungarian. Uh, he's also uh, one of the early professor's followers uh, and author of um, the little introductory book uh, Beyond Mises. We're not here to uh, promote your book, but we're here to promote another cause of reading, so I will uh, give the floor to you. Well, I'm here to promote my book, so there you go, <laughs> commercial. Uh, the book is available, I have the last one here, it's 10 pounds of special, but Shh, don't tell anybody. It's on Amazon already as a um, e-book, a, a Kindle book, but it's not really clean yet, so I'm still working to edit it. But if anybody wants one, there's also a website called beyondmises.com. And this is my, my own personal email. If you have any questions, please do uh, contact me. So, the origin of money. Well, I'm not a monetary scientist. I'm not a scientist. I love science and in, in particular natural philosophy, which is the origin of science. Today, science is perverted as many other things are. Professor is a monetary scientist. Uh, my career as an engineer, it's been taking uh, laws of nature, if you will, and applying them in the real world. And that more or less is the role that I've, I've had in this organization. This book I wrote to bring the professor's very erudite and, and packed words to a broad audience like me who can understand this you know, on a simpler level or a more expanded level. So now bear with engineers, like engineers don't just go up in a cloud, they're not philosophers, they're like engineers. I want to build a, a container, define container. What's it going to contain? How much? What temperature? What force is it subject to? Very specific. So my talk is the origin of money. The origin of money. Well, I know what the means. Origin, yeah, that's where it starts, begins, of money. What's money? Whoa. We're going to have to define money before we can talk about the origin of money. But before that, I'd like to ask, you guys all got this, or did you? Did anybody read this yet? Hands up, no? Did anybody not read it? Is that yes, read it or not read it? I did read it. You did read it? You did read it? Who did not read it? Okay, all the others have neither read it nor not read it. And some of you have read it and not read it as well, which is four-sided logic. Uh, today, most people consider two-sided logic. This is the glass, and everything else is not. And it's one or the other. But even Sandeep put up here a little, a little line, the, the so-called uh, barrier or the dividing point between two concepts, that's kind of blurred. And that's where Menger looked. He said, it's neither this nor that. It's both this and that, and so on. So you've got four ways of looking at things rather than two. And this is very important because nothing is as simple as Aristotle. Well, I shouldn't say nothing, but natural world, these things are not so simple. So you've got to know what money is. Uh, I, there's, a, there's a little, ch little uh, thing called M1 or whatever, the high-powered money, and, and it looks like this over the last few years. This is, this is quantity of that money, Q, and this is time. 
But what is the money? What, what are we talking about here? I see this chart and the, and the numbers go up drastically, but what does it mean? So let's define money. In order to define money, we've got to understand exchange. And Professor put it perfectly clearly. I've got this, and the other guy's got that. And if I value that, more than I value this, and he values this, more than I value that, they trade. But the money sort of comes in the middle. Here's the money. I'm going to use the money to buy this, and he's going to sell me something else, and back and forth. So I've got to value this, this intermediary, and the other guy's got to value it. So money has a role of carrying value, if you will. But it, it's not valuable in its own self. I mean, people say gold has intrinsic value. Well, nothing has intrinsic value. Value arises in human consciousness. But the paper promise of gold is not valuable in itself. It's valuable because of the promise hopefully kept that you will get gold for it or anything else. So this is where money comes in. It's, it's, it's facilitating uh, indirect exchange. So it has to carry value. Now you carry value in a geographical sense from one place to another. And you also carry value through time. If, if the money, or whatever you call money, depreciates, it's not very good money. And if you can't use it anywhere geographically, it's not very good money. Now, today, of course, I, I trade my Canadian dollars for pounds, and I, I get hit with an exchange fee. And if I have some surplus pounds, I go back, get hit with another exchange fee. So even geographically, this paper stuff is not very efficient. And time-wise, of course, if you look at the opposite of this curve is the value of the dollar, which <laughs> goes down like this. And J.P. Morgan put it when he was asked what is money, he said, gold is money, everything else is credit. Ooh, credit, there's a new word. What, let's define credit. What is credit? Well, credit is an exchange of a present good, this thing right here now, for a promise. A promise of what? Well, of something in the future. <laughs> a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Why? Because a bird in the hand is a present good. It's right here. You can eat it or do whatever you want with it. Two in the bush, maybe, maybe we'll catch it, maybe not, maybe, who knows. So we've got to be very clear on this, a present good versus so-called, the Austrians call it, uh, or the American Austrians call it a future good. A future, a promise of a present good in the future. So if the money doesn't hold its value, it's not going to do a good job of this. <clears throat> so if we've got, you know, we've got credit versus money. It's kind of like fire and water. They're quite the opposite. Water, fire, water extinguishes fire. Money extinguishes credit. Extinguish, put out. Uh, if I lend somebody a pound of sugar, or, or somebody, or I borrow a pound of sugar, let's say I borrow a pound of sugar from you, I give you an IOU, there it is, okay. And then I'm supposed to pay you back the sugar next week. I forget to go shopping, ooh, geez. Uh, I call my other friend, you got a pound of sugar? Oh, give it to this guy, and you'll get the IOU. So you're paid off, but the credit still exists, and the IOU exists. And if I write another IOU, the credit still exists, and the, the present good, the sugar, will pay that debt. So one definition, I like this definition of money. Money extinguishes all debt. All debt. That means uh, debt for goods, debt for services. If you go to uh, 
hairdresser, get your hair done, money will extinguish that debt. That is a debt. You owe something. And all debt means if you get your salary in the form of sugar, you're not going to be very happy because you don't want to lug home tons of sugar. So it has to extinguish all debt. And it must be a present good. Now, this was very well known hundred and some odd years ago. People knew what money was. It was they were fish in water. Money, clink, gold, silver, no question. This has changed for some reason. Uh, you know, humans recognize gold and silver. Now when I talk about gold, you have to understand that silver is always in this, in this equation. I mean specie, I mean monetary metals. Gold was recognized as having value well into prehistory. Tens of thousands of years ago, people found it. Why? That's besides the point. But it's interesting, they, they see this glittering, nice, shiny substance amongst a bunch of rubble and dirt, and, and oh, look, that's something special. Same thing with silver. Native gold, remember there's no native metals until metallurgy. But gold was found and accumulated for tens of thousands of years. And it was only maybe a couple of thousand years ago, Greeks and so on, that gold was coined. Now this is a big step forward because it went from gold which has its value as gold or as a statue or as the spirit of the sun god and the, 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 the silver has the spirit of the moon goddess, whatever. Suddenly it became a commercially viable thing. You could trade it easily. You didn't have to measure and test the gold. So this was a big step forward. Of course, soon as somebody figured out how to stamp coins, somebody else came along and figured out how do we make more coins? Because the coins are the money. So the Romans, for example, they started off with the, um, what was the gold, or the silver coin they had? Drachma or something. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Denarius. Yeah. Denarius. Denarius, there you go. And when it was first issued 60 or 65 BC, it had 0.4 grams of silver in it. And two, 250 years later, when the Roman Empire went down the tubes, they had 0.04 grams, or virtually no silver. And the, of course, the value of it declined as the silver or money content declined. So the coin is not the money. The coin is a presentation of the monetary metal in a measurable quantity. Uh, a weight and fineness of gold. And that's another definition of money. Now then Menger comes along and he was a couple hundred years ago, and everybody knew this, but he's the guy who had the curiosity. He was the fish in water who said, what's water? Or he was the human being in air, or the bird in air said, what's air? Well, this is it. What do you want no more? Well, he did. He dug around and he quantified this and put it on a more or less scientific or numerically measurable <coughs> basis. And the professor talked about marketability, and if you look at this really closely, in reality, there's no spread on gold. Gold is gold. There's no spread on money. Money is money. You don't buy and sell money. You buy and sell other commodities with the money. So if you take your car off the parking lot, brand new car, and you pay, I don't know, 10,000 pounds for it, and you drive it one block, and you want to sell it, you know how much loss you take. So there's a it's very illiquid. Whereas gold is... Uh, money and it's been accumulated for centuries thousands of years and that's why the stock to flows of gold are huge 80 years worth of gold and Perhaps something in that neighborhood for silver exist above ground and How come it hasn't lost its value? Isn't there a uh, an equilibrium supply and demand curve out there? What is 
80 years worth of mine supply, so it should be worthless. It should be like a glut. Should be. Well, interestingly enough, it's not. And why not? Because it's money. That you, money, money is unique. There's another little, little story. Like you're in the Sahara Desert, and you're lost, and you're getting thirsty. And along comes a sharp Arab trader on a camel. You know, you want some water? Oh, yes. How much are you going to pay me? Anything. You buy the water because you're desperate. That's your highest thing on your value scale. The value scale is another Austrian thing. And then you drink the water and, well, you want another one? Well, yeah, maybe. Drink another liter. You want another one? No, no, I have no room for that anymore. The, the utility of the next liter of water has suddenly gone down. But, but I'll buy a canteen from you if you have a canteen to spare and, and carry the water. So you buy canteens full of water and you're staggering along with all these canteens. You want another canteen? No, no, no. The value or the marginal utility or the value of the next increment? No. And now suddenly the next thing you want, maybe, oh, sell me a camel. I want to get out of the desert. Whatever. Or, or if you're driving your car and your gas meter is going down less and less and less, but more and more important, that's your focus. I've got to get some gas. You start filling it. You get to the end. There's no more utility in the next liter of gasoline. Where would you put it? What would you use it for? And you're, you know, you have no, that's the, the declining marginal utility. But notice one thing. When you bought your water or your camel or your gasoline, you used money to buy it. So the money is used for anything that you want, anything economical that you want. And it's always the most valuable thing, because you always want what you want the most right now. That's what it is, and it's a dynamic thing, but the money is the money. So there's many ways to proceed here. Sometimes, why is it money, why not something else? It's just the way it is. That's just the way it is, because 80 years of accumulation, uh, sorry, 8,000 years of accumulation have led to 80 years worth of gold, and you can measure it any way you want, uh, marginal utility, or stock to flows, blah, blah, blah present good. That's what it was. So, uh, and of course, during history, mankind tried many other things that would have a monetary value that would be used as a trade good. You can call them trade good beads and salt and, uh, I don't know, when, when in the West they, they used to sell blankets to the Indians and trade and all this, but money is money. Now, in order to best understand what money is, it helps to understand what money is not and why did J.P. Morgan say everything else is credit. Well, we already defined credit. So we're going to look at, and this is the, the main thing here, how did this get lost? How did people lose sight of the fact that gold and silver are money and nothing else is? Everything else is credit to today when most people believe money is that stuff in your, in, you know, that piece of paper in your pocket. Now there's a, I call this a, an urban myth that paper money is descended from blacksmith's receipts, uh, sorry, not blacksmith, goldsmith's receipts. The theory or the idea is that people didn't want to carry lots of gold and heavy silver, so they deposited their, their money with the goldsmith and got a receipt in turn and used that in trade. Well, I don't know, if I was expecting money, I would want money, but... And then the, the goldsmith noticed that not everybody took their money out at once. There was always a surplus. He said, well, I'll just print some more uh, receipts. So they're called, you know, they were false receipts. Well, people who believe this believe that people are incredibly naive or were. Our ancestors were idiots. And I don't think that's true. 
and that it was fraudulent from the word get-go. I don't think that's true. And there's no historical record of any of this stuff happening. Now the professor had a different theory on this, and he said, hmm, monetary scientists, remember? And it didn't descend from receipts, it descended from bills. Bills of exchange, or real bills. Oh, there's another new word, bill. What is a bill? Well, you all know what a bill is. If you buy anything, you get a bill, which itemizes what you bought and how much it costs. And you look at it, yeah, and you pay it. When you go to a restaurant, uh, you get a check. They call it a check. I don't know if they call it a check here. You go to a bar, you get a tab. But it's the same principle. You get this bill, you, you look at it, you accept it, you pay it. Now, there's commercial bills. If uh, a 30,000-liter truck full of gasoline pulls up to the gas station, fills up the underground tanks, and then the driver goes in the office to settle the paperwork, is he going to get $30,000 or pounds or euros of cash? I don't think so. Or is the attendant going to write him a check? No. What does the attendant do? He accepts the bill. He signs the bill and says, yep, 30,000 liters of gasoline on this day, and we pay in the future sometimes. So there are terms. Rudy, yes. in this country it's called petrol. Petrol, I'm sorry. And it's probably not called a bill, it's probably called an invoice. But anyway, <laughs> you can all translate to yourself. The petrol truck pulls up and, yeah. In, in the US I would have to say gallons because they wouldn't even know what a liter is, you know. Um, so, you, you, when you go to the restaurant and you get your check and you pay, it's done, and the piece of paper becomes an, a, a record in the, uh, the accounts of the restaurant. But when the gasoline or petrol is delivered, this is alive, it's active, it's a claim against money based on goods delivered. The gasoline is in the tank, ready to sell. And then the, the retailer will sell liter by liter, gallon by gallon, and in 60, 90, whatever days, accumulate the money and pay. That is the crux of the bill, of bills of exchange, or what Adam Smith called real bills, or people call the real bills doctrine of Adam Smith. Now Adam Smith was a guy like Minger. He was very smart. He was not a scientist. He was a natural philosopher. He observed. He looked and he saw. And he said, oh, that's how these things work. Wow, this is interesting. And it's like Menger. He said, no, no, there's no price. There's a bid and an offer. And he said, the world trade is carried by these bills. Well, guess what? A dollar bill is called a dollar bill. It's not called a dollar receipt or a dollar receipt or anything like that. Interesting. Now, you have to understand what this bill was. This, this, was, this whole bill market is a huge topic which I don't have time to cover in exhaustive detail. But what it meant was that it's trust-based credit. Uh, it's not borrowing. You know, the gasoline station doesn't borrow the gas the, uh, or the petrol. It's put in this tank on consignment. It theoretically still belongs to the wholesaler, but it's sitting in this guy's tank and he's selling it. And bit by bit, he sells it and pays it off. And without this, he would have to go out and borrow money uh, on the bond market, pay the interest rate to buy this gasoline, or put his own cash in there. Now, if we have time, I'll put up a little, little thing about that too. But here are these bills. Now, what, is the, what does the wholesaler do with this bill, this gas or petrol bill? Well, he can accumulate it in his drawer as his accounts receivable. Or he could assign it to maybe the gasoline refinery. Say, well, I'm going to pay my bill to you with this. 
which is coming from the gas station. Oh, so he, he assigns it to that other recipient, and when the, the thing comes due, he gets paid, not me, or not the wholesaler. You all understand this? If, if you, uh, you sell something to somebody, and you get a promise from him to pay you, you pass this on to the other guy, and if he likes it, says gasoline on, on a main street, um, yeah, that'll sell, that money will come in, okay, we accept it. Or if it's bread, or beer, or anything. And built on this system, this real bills doc, uh, uh, circulation payment, was the whole, uh, what do you call it, peaceable days, the pre-World War I, wonderful times, backed by gold. And all these bills matured into gold. So, once we had these bills, you, you, you understand uh, that a retail bill is just a retail bill, you pay it. A commercial bill is just a commercial bill. For example, if you, you know, the, a bill for a table like this, it's not exciting. Nobody would want that. Why should they, how, do you, how does that get paid? I don't know, I'm not interested. But it's for, let's say a, a, a keg of beer goes to the pub, and there's a bill outstanding in the the pub owner will pay for this beer in 60 days, yeah, that beer will sell. People will not go teetotal or all at once. It's a consumer good in demand. It will be paid, so it will be accepted in payment. And this is circulation. Now, when there's circulation of a means of settling debt or credit, that's a monetary function. So already you can see that this bill has a monetary function, but it also has a cutoff date, and once it's paid, it's gone. It goes into the, into the record, disappears. And new bills are drawn constantly. Now, what the professor came out with this, and I thought it was very interesting, the mechanism of how this bill works, worked, well, there was no electronic stuff for computers, obviously. It was a piece of paper. And on it was written, I, uh, you know, Peter, the, the pub owner, accepted, uh, you know, six cases or six barrels of beer, and promised to pay whatever 100 monetary units to uh, Bob the Brewer in 90 days from this date, blah, blah, blah. Done, official, takes it. Then he can, now this bill has something, some value because it's, it's against the desirable good and it promises money and the likelihood that it will be paid, okay? And therefore, it's usable in payment. And of course, it's cost-free. It actually, it's, it's at a discount. Now, what is the discount? Uh, maybe you've heard about the word discount. Bills work on a discount basis, not on an interest basis. So I, I think I have to put this up on the board because people don't understand the difference. You know, percentage means nothing by itself. I mean, you could say, what's the percentage of alcohol in my beer? 5%. What does that have to do with interest rates at 5%? Nothing, except it's 5%. So a discount annualized to 5% is not at all the same as an interest rate of 5%. Let's say you want to, here's your, your little curve. This is time, and this is money. So you buy something at 100, I don't know, whatever it is, gold units or euros or pounds, and then this is... 30 days, 60, 90. On this day, it's due. And it better be paid. Because if it's not paid, lots of things kick in from the market. You'll be blackballed. You'll never have credit again. 
Now, if you, uh, you pay, you're going to pay exactly this amount, okay? Because that's what you promised to pay. There's no ifs and or buts about it. But let's suppose you borrow the money. Well, you're going to have to add another line here, and this encompasses the interest rate. So let's say the interest rate is 4% per annum. That means 1% for 90 days, right? So if you pay back your, your, uh, your, your borrowing, you're going to pay that much more. Instead of, instead of getting 100, you're going to get one less. You, you, you're putting up one. You're giving up one. Now, one out of 100 doesn't sound like much. But think about it. What's the net profit on this? It's not 100. This is what you're buying and reselling. Your net profit, if you're lucky, if you have a pretty good business, could be maybe 8% per annum. That makes sense? 8% is your profit, and 4% is the interest rate. Okay, so in 90 days, you make one point, uh, you make 2% profit, that's 8 divided by 4. That makes sense? You, you buy this stuff for 100, sell it for 102, four times a year. Not, you know, after expenses and so on, I'm not going to consider all that. This is the net. So your, your, your actual profit is two, and one is your interest payment. Half your profit goes to finance your business. Half your profit. That's incredible. Nobody looks at it that way. They say, well, it's only 4% interest rate. But compare it to your net profit, it's huge. Now, if you, have a, if you finance it through a bill, the worst you can do is, is this point here, because that's what you promised to pay that 100, right, in 90 days. So if you don't sell your stuff early or nothing happens, you end up with this. But suppose you sell early. Suppose consumers are driving their cars like crazy, or they're getting drunk more often, or eating more bread, or whatever you're in. You sell it, you, you pay back here. You pay back in 60 days, you pay early, you prepay your bill, you get a discount. And if you prepay it even more early, you get a bigger discount. And if a miracle happens and you sell all your stock in the very same day, you get the full 90 days of discount. So this reduces your cost of business by whatever the discount rate is, the discount is, and this borrowing would add to it. That's okay with you guys, you understand what I'm saying here? This is enormous, enormous, because every step of the way, you know, this gasoline goes through the retailer, the wholesaler, the refiner, the, the pipeline, uh, the, the guys who slurp it out of the ground, etc., etc. And, you know, your, your beer has many, many suppliers of different goods, and every level, this kicks in. That's why there was no unemployment under the real bills doctrine, because cost of business was so much lower, and marginal businesses that cannot survive and don't have enough profit, if, if your business is only 4% profitable, which is actually possible, you would pay all of it into interest. You would have zero income. So why do it? So all these things drop out. 
So these are the bills. Now, if anybody's interested, there's a lot more information about bills. The clearing system of the gold standard, without which gold standard cannot survive, and this bone hasn't been picked yet. The new, the new Austrians are gung-ho, and the American Austrians don't even want to hear about this practically. And yet this was the crux of it. The gold standard has gold money, gold bonds, and gold bills. And all those together make the structure. And I could go on about how this is market-driven. If more people buy goods, uh, more bills are, 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 are drawn, and how it, it plays its monetary role in exchange, and after they expire, they, they, they go away. They're not like paper money or whatever that's printed and then sticks around in Chinese bank trillion dollars. So, now do you understand what the discount is? Why there's a discount? No? Yes, maybe? If, 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 let's say I buy...